Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by extra special guest, repeat guest, John Warlow. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great to have you. Yeah, I mean, our last interview, I think it was in 2018, and you really opened my eyes to something uh, that folks should, folks should perhaps uh, go back and listen to. And it was, I, I'm not someone who ever was ever planning on retiring or selling my business, um, but you brought something up that was that really opened my eyes to maybe thinking about that, and it was kind of like, well, what if what if you had a a new idea that you wanted to do even more, or of course, if there's some sort of a health issue, um, and then there's sort of a, a third dimension to that, which is all of the things that you would do to sell a business are the kinds of things that you would do to create value in your own business, even if you weren't going to sell it. Uh, so welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me back. And uh, it's great to be with you. So for folks who haven't uh, listened to that episode and maybe are hearing your name for the first time, can you give us a, a quick 60 seconds on the context? Yeah. So I guess I've written a, a trilogy of books around this notion of building a company that you can ultimately leave uh, and sell. So Built to Sell was about how do you kind of uh, create something of value that doesn't depend on you, automatic customer, how do you create recurring revenue so that it's got a life after you. And then this this new book about the art of selling a business, meaning the art of harvesting a business. So that's really uh, me in a nutshell. I, I've started and exited four companies. So Essentially, it's something that I, I write about quite a bit. So, excellent. So, yeah, as you know, uh, most of my listeners are software developers and engineers and are capable of building, uh, really bootstrapping any kind of SaaS business they can think of. And I know I've had a few students who've actually done that. Uh, it's definitely not my area of expertise, though. So, uh, I was wondering if we could um, kind of use that as an entry point. So, what what, let's say someone has let's say someone has built something, sure, uh, and it's maybe got maybe got some clients, but it's you know like what where do you even start? I don't even know where to start with that that sort of a conversation. Yeah, I mean, it, look, if you've got a SaaS company right now, you're in a great position because they are incredibly desirable businesses, and they don't actually have to be that big. I just did a podcast with a guy named Rob Walling. Do you know Rob? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Great. So he told me about his his company, um, built it up to $2 million of ARR, which stands for annual recurring revenue, which I'm sure you know, and like not a very big company. And he reached the point where you know, given the multiples people are paying for businesses like that, somewhere around nine to 12, uh, excuse me, nine to 14 times revenue is what he expected to get for the business. That he kind of said, like, if I sell this thing now, I don't have to worry about money for the rest of my life. Now he's a young guy. He doesn't, he's not going to not do something else. Of course, he's right. going to do lots of other things, but he can get his first foot on that, if you will, ladder of success, which allows him to, to kind of breathe and, and feel free of the need to work, not that he's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Rob was uh, just a, a good example of someone that triggered for me because, you know, when you said that you've got a business that's maybe not that big, mm -hmm. you don't have to have a big SaaS company for it to be a sellable company. It, mm. it, it just has to have recurring sticky customers. And right. that's really, the, the, I think, the precursor to a sellable SaaS company. So let's talk about that multiple for a second, because I've, you know, again, not my area of expertise, but I've got some mm -hmm. students who we've kind of worked on, you know, looking at businesses and like, how would we market this one if we bought it? You know, there's a site called FEI that where you could just browse around and, and buy sites, you basically mm -hmm. buy a website or buy a SaaS. And the multiple that 
that kept cropping up as I was kind of researching this was three or four times revenue, but you just said nine to 12. Is there a things changed? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot comes down. So, so, you know, two, three, four times top line revenue would be very, very normal for a, uh, a small ish SaaS company. So when I say small, you know, one to $5 million in ARR, that would be what I would expect to see where you start seeing uh, the much higher multiples, you see it's being driven largely by the growth rate of the company. And, and so when an acquirer sees the, the ARR exploding on a month over month basis, that's when you see extraordinary multiples. So it's, it's about the growth rate and the growth rate only happens um, when the net churn rate really has to be negative net churn. So, do you, do you talk with your students about yeah, yeah, yeah. Try, churn a lot? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, gross and then net being gross minus upgrades. And if you can get net to be sub zero, that's when you start to see the hockey state growth and you start to get the the really, you know, extraordinary multiples mm-hmm. that that Rob was able to get. Okay. So there's, there's two questions that come up for me there. Do you have advice for people who haven't yet hit that negative churn? Like what? Is there, is there like, um, I mean, there's sort of, I feel like obvious things, but maybe, maybe there's just patently obvious, which is like, you know, you need to have a good service. You don't want people, you know, to leave. Um, is there, are there like, I don't know how much of a specialty SaaS businesses are for you, but how far can you, how far can you go for the listeners with, I don't know, tactics that would decrease churn, um, because you know you see you see different things you see like kind of black hat tactics where they just make it really hard for you to cancel and you have to call someone and that's super yeah, irritating. Not a big fan of those. <laughs> yeah. So what what are some of the outside of just making an incredible product? Are there some sort of uh, you know three or five tactics that people commonly miss? Yeah, yeah. Onboarding is probably the biggest driver of retention. Said another way, crappy onboarding is the biggest driver of churn. So <laughs> onboarding being, you know, the, the first 30 days of a relationship with a, mm-hmm. with a customer, uh, if you nail that, and in particular, get the customer to start using the product, uh, you will find you have a very sticky customer long-term. Just If you just look at the analytics, it is, it is the most important time, the first 30 days. Equally, you can do everything you want after that window to try to get them to stimulate usage. But at the time the 30-day mark is gone, you're, you're, you, you in large measure have lost that customer. If It's the just veiled churn waiting to happen. They're yeah. zombies. They're, they're going to churn. Mm-hmm. So I think one, you really want to nail the onboarding experience. Um, obviously, it goes without saying you got to have a great product that people sure. want to use. The other thing I think is worth doing some thinking around is what's the upgrade journey like? So in the case of Rob, for example, he had an email marketing software. And so as you uploaded more contacts into his software, his price increases, the price bands went up. And so he had that natural sort of alignment with his customers that as they grew, he grew, which is what enabled them to get to negative net churn. So I'd just be asking myself, like, what's our upgrade path? So for our customers who are successful using our tool, um, it's it's great that they're successful and it's great that they're sticky and they're going to stay a long time. 
you're still going to lose comp- companies because companies go out of business and, and there's natural churn in the market. So how do we offset that by having an upgrade path? So it could be usage-based, um, you know, it could be number of users. Uh, there could be all sorts of ways, but really giving some deep thought to what's that journey like, mm. I think is, is, is another important element of uh, driving down your net churn. Excellent. Yeah, that's great. And I've, I've certainly seen that as a customer of of Drip. <laughs> they, <laughs> Wait a minute, my bill just went up. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, they're pretty, they're polite about it, though. They warn you that it's going to happen and everything. Um, what do you think about this? I feel like this is related. What do you think about the, the pricing models where, um, is it better or worse? Or does it matter to have people on a monthly plan or an annual plan? Like, what's the general feeling there? Because I've, I've heard sort of pros and cons to both. Yeah, I, I've heard pros and cons and experienced pros and cons as well. You know, I, I hate to sound like the trite answer of you got to test it, but you got to test it to see how, what impact it has. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people find that charging up front is, has two benefits. Number one, it, it, it gives you the cash up front, right? Uh, number two, it, it makes the customer uh, pay more attention to the onboarding experience. If, if you pay 1200 bucks for a product, you see that hit your Amex card and you're like, okay, I, you know, I should actually use this thing, right? And you pay more attention when the customer success people call you and say, hey, let's use the product. Whereas if it's just 99 bucks a month, it's like, ah, maybe I'll get to it next month. And you, and you don't bet in. And so for that reason, I like charging an annual fee up front because it, it forces better onboarding or the customer to pay attention to onboarding. Mm-hmm. The second benefit of getting up front um, is that it really helps the value of your company because when an acquirer looks at your business, they're going to say, okay, we, we've got to write two checks. We got to write a check to the owner to buy the business, but then we've got to also write a check to the company for what's called working capital, which is basically the the cash the business needs to meet its immediate obligations. And if your business is a cash suck, meaning you are charging monthly and it costs you, you know, it takes six months to recover your cost of acquisition, for example, they've got to finance that. And the faster you grow, the more cash you need. And, and so that actually diminishes the value of your company in the eyes of an acquirer if, ca- if your company is a cash suck. Whereas if, if you can make the case to an acquirer that, hey, we get most of our customers to pay a year up front, so the, more fast we, the faster we grow, the more cash we accumulate, now they've got more money to pay you for your company because they don't have to write a check for working capital. So that mm, interesting. has kind of two benefits to uh, to charging up front. But clearly, you know, you've got to weigh that in the context of does it depress the speed with which companies buy because they've got to make a bigger buying decision. And so I, I, I test both, but knowing that there's a, there's a, there's a couple of hidden benefits to getting people to, to, mm. to pay up front. Yeah, that's a great example of something I never would have thought of. <laughs> Um, so one of the downsides I've heard, uh, from SaaS owners who offer annual plans is that there, there can be a lot of hidden churn. Like it's too, you don't know that, that like yeah. you can kind of see a trend if you're paying, if you're, if you're billing monthly, you can kind of see a trend that like the new release is ticking people off or whatever, you know, the marketing, the marketing team, they're doing something new is just not working. Uh, or there's something happened inside of the, pro- maybe the onboarding team has changed, whatever it is, you can see churn more in realer time than once a year. Uh, anyway, it, that that was one thing that I you know heard from someone with experience and I was like, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that either, having never run a SaaS. So mm-hmm. um, I find that fascinating. So, so you, your answer really is like test, but um, there are some 
interesting advantages to having that annual plan paid up front. Yeah. And I mean, if you're going to go annual and to avoid or at least uh, minimize the hidden churn or, or the, the surprise churn, if you will, um, you, you know, forward looking indicators, uh, you could certainly use net promoter score as a forward looking indicator of your levels of satisfaction. Uh, equally, most SaaS companies uh, use some sort of power user score or engagement score or a way to to, to measure usage of the product based on a number of the key features that you want people to use. So reporting on that and making sure that you're not seeing a drop off on usage, because that's obviously the bellwether of churn is sure. if, if usage drops. So I, I agree with you that, that you get surprised when the annual contract doesn't renew, but if you've got a couple of forward looking indicators, I think you can largely offset that concern. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Uh, what you you mentioned a little before that company doesn't have to be huge, but is it is it is it always better? I'm sure the answer is it depends, but is it always better to have <laughs> more customers, or is it more about the velocity, like the that sort of curve? Yeah, when it comes to the value of your company, uh, it, you know, um, business to business SaaS products are oftentimes valued higher because the perceived churn is lower in part because businesses make money using the software. Like if you think about something like a salesforce.com, you know, once you're embedded with them, it's very, very difficult to, to unsubscribe because it's, that's how you run your company. Whereas if it's a business to consumer SaaS play, uh, it's probably not their, you know, their, their life for, you know, death decisions. So something like a masterclass.com, although wonderful value proposition, uh, you know, you could argue that you might drop that if, 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 if you had to. So I, I think rather than just thinking about growth rate, you know, if you're, if you're kind of on the fence and you're thinking of starting a SaaS company, certainly a B2B, so business to business, in particular, when you're serving a specific vertical. So, um, you know, I wrote about uh, a company that did a, a, a built a, a, a marketplace for used cars that used car dealers, you like bought and sold cars on. I mean, it's like a fair, it's like a six digit NAICS code. It's like a very, very specific industry, but people who are used car dealers love this site and therefore it's very sticky and therefore it's very valuable. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think, I think we oftentimes people who've never started company, uh, think way too big and broad with their ideas. Like I'm going to be the next Google or the next uh, MailChimp or whatever. And it's like, it's like pick a, like pick a six digit NAICS code or, or like a very, very specific industry, um, dominate that and then start building from there as opposed to trying to, you know, take on Google or something like that. Yeah. Is, definitely preaching to the choir here. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, so, sure. so yeah. So what, what does, so imagine, imagine we're I'm kind of like mentally moving through the timeline of, of a listener who's, you know, maybe they've got a SaaS, they built it up, they're doing, I don't know, 10 grand a month, uh, MRR yeah. and, and they're at what point would someone start to think when's the right time to start thinking about selling? Let's say they're definitely going to sell at some point, but what's the trigger event that makes me think, okay, now's the time. Yeah, I, I think. Um, well, first of all, the very best time to sell is when someone's buying. So if you get an unsolicited offer for your company, take it seriously. Um, I interviewed, uh, have you had Rand Fishkin on the show? Do you know Rand? No, I don't. I know who you're talking about, but no. 
Yeah. So I, I had Rand uh, on my show and he just told the story of SEO Moz. Mm-hmm. Brian Halligan from HubSpot approached him to buy the business, offered him $25 million. It was a $5 million company. So five times revenue. Rand had the idea that it was worth four times future revenue and he expected to make 10. So he counteroffered at 40. Halligan said no. Um, Rand decided not to sell the company. Uh, he took VC money instead. And over time, the business spiraled out of control. He was in way too many businesses. Ultimately, he was removed as the CEO. Uh, The VCs, venture capitalists, had preferred shares, which means that he may not get any money from the sale of his company when it eventually happens. And uh, I asked him on the show, I said, like, what, like, like, what's your net worth now? And he said, my entire uh, life savings is $800,000, much of which I'm about to spend on elder care for my grandparents. And I said, what would that offer from HubSpot be worth today? And he said, it would be worth more than $200 million <laughs> because the, 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 the 25 million was cash and some stock and the stock has appreciated so much. Anyways, it's a long <laughs> way of saying the best time to sell is when you get it, like when you get an offer, yeah, that's an enormous, like, like that's an indicator for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, so let's, let's say that, okay. Like, let's say that doesn't happen. What, like, what do you do? I mean, I'm, I think I mentioned already FEI, what do you, like, how do you, how would someone go about finding a, a buyer? Would you put yourself on a marketplace or would you make phone calls? Would you uh, go to, I don't know, like, what would you do? Yeah, I, I would hire uh, an M&A professional or a business broker mm-hmm. to do this. It, this, you know, Dan Sullivan, uh, the strategic coach guy says that, uh, there are who problems and how problems. And to me, this, this, this project of finding a buyer for your company is a who problem, not a how problem. So mm-hmm. it, it's not your expertise uh, as, a, as a SaaS company founder or, or a, you know, a business owner in general to sell a company. That is a very specific you know, uh, set of skills. And so I would find an M&A professional or a business broker. I'm not one, so I'm, I'm not, this is not me sort of plugging myself, but mm-hmm. I would find someone who does that. And in the case of a SaaS business, there are actually, if you just Google, uh, you know, business brokers, SaaS business, or you know, M and A firm, there are uh, uh, M and A professionals who specialize in selling SaaS businesses. If your ARR is less than um, two million dollars, so if your annual recurring revenue is below two million dollars a year, you're probably going to be best served by a business broker. Uh, and if your ARR starts to go up. Um, to three, four, five million, you're probably going to be better served by an M and A professional. Um, so those are two different flavors of the same kind of person that mm-hmm. basically whose job is to sell a company. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what would what would let's say we're on the two million side of things, and yeah. I find a business broker. What what what's that experience like? Should, what would my expectations be? Do they take a commission? Does it take six months? Does it take six weeks? Is it six years? You know what what are the how much time is it going to take out of my day to go through this process? How much of it do they handle? Yeah. Um, yeah. So a bunch of questions there, but I'll try Sorry. to kind of encapsulate. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's their job is to sell a company. Uh, you, you know, you, you would typically pay a commission to a business broker. It, it, they often work on on something called a revised Lehman uh, or uh, Lehman formula, if you will, which mm-hmm. is essentially they get 10% of the first million in value. 
8% of the next million, 6% of the next million and so forth. So they, they have a diminishing share of each million dollars, but for the first million of value, it's usually uh, 10%. So that you do pay them a commission. So they're motivated to sell your company. What you wanna do is make sure that they have a good reputation. Some brokers are have a bad reputation for just listing businesses like it's a home for sale. And, and that's not a great broker. You want someone who's going to proactively market your company. So I'd be asking them about their marketing plan for the business, how they're going to attract buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might at one point ask you to do uh, something called a pre-diligence or a quality of earnings uh, project, which effectively is like... Um, it's almost like an, a reverse audit or reverse due diligence where you hire typically an accounting firm or some third party consultancy to, 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 to validate all your numbers. And so that the broker can kind of hand off in a, in a beautiful sort of um, package with a, a ribbon around it, your financials that have been pre-validated, which can go a long way to giving confidence to a buyer that you're not just faking it. You've actually you know built something. Uh, so they'll often ask you to do some sort of, uh, pre-diligence or quality of earnings. And, and again, I would, I would get a third party if I could afford like an accountant to do that because uh, that can be a very uh, arduous process. Mm, yeah. I've looked at, uh, for a friend, looked at a few businesses on FEI and, and seen like, I don't know, if it's, it's like a giant deck of all the numbers and it's, and it's, it's critical. I mean, from sitting on that side of the table, I wouldn't even consider looking at something that didn't have at least a, an appearance of of, I don't know if it's not like everybody's cooking their books or whatever, but I, I would want to have like a pretty clear indication of trends and, and the reality of the behind the scenes information, which you're not going to get anywhere else. So, um, but yeah, that, that kind of a thing is critically important. And then ha- when, as the buyer or potential buyer sitting there, the next big question I mind is like, well, why are they selling it if these numbers are so good? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a great, I mean, it's, a, you've, you've nailed one of the most, innocuous sounding, but critical questions that you rehearse as you think about selling your company, because you've got one shot to do this. And that question stumps more entrepreneurs than I think any other question, because, you know, eventually uh, in the process of trying to sell your business, the acquirer is going to look at you, turn to you and look at you maybe over Zoom, hopefully one day in person. And they're going to say, if this is so great, why do you want to sell? Exactly. if you kind of stutter or fumble, it can be the death knell of your company. And I think a lot of it depends a little bit on sort of um, your age and stage in life. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're 58 and someone says, why do you want to sell? I think you can legitimately say, like, I'm at a stage in my life where I need to sort of de-risk a little bit, diversify my wealth. And, you know, I think everybody would understand that, right? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you're 28, that's a tougher sell. Yeah. Right. If you're like Rob Wall, uh, Walling, uh, that's that's a bit of a tougher sell. So you've got to, you know, you've got to uh, provide a different response. You know, one of my one of the ones I like, especially if you're willing to stick around and help them transition the business, is is something like, uh, you know, we're just at a point where there's so much opportunity in front of us. We really need a partner to help us to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. That suggests that you're willing to stick around, help them monetize. There's a huge upside, but you know, you really need. And and one thing acquirers love to boast about and stick their chest out about is like how much resources we have, like you know how, how big a company we are, how much cash we have, how much you know how many distribution channels we have. And they kind of it's like playing to their ego a little bit. They like 
they like to feel like they have extra resources. And so you can say, I'd really like you to be my partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that can help. So, okay. And that, that actually leads right into uh, my next question, which is what to expect after the sale. So, you, you know, there's sort of the golden handcuff scenario that you just described where you would stick around and have, you know, a new a boss or whatever, like however yeah. you want to call whatever you want to call it. Or is it more common that, you know, I've seen somewhere it's just like, you know, the person created this bootstrap thing, solo operator, it makes five grand a month reliably. Um, they haven't really touched the product in a year because they've been doing something much newer and bigger and more fun. And this other thing's just going to die unless somebody buys it type of thing. And I actually find that fairly compelling too. It's like the person is like, look, this thing's making $5,000 a month doing with no, not even customer support. Yeah. And you know, like, of course I don't want it anymore. I'm doing something completely different and this thing's just dying. I don't want it to die. So if you want it, it's free money basically. Um, but that's, to me, that's, that's the idea of going from, uh, from a situation where it's like a solo operator or a founder with a small team and then working for someone is like for just personally is like comically distasteful. So <laughs> I, I know that, a little bit about you and I don't think you'd like it. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't, I'm unemployable. I mean, there's just no way. So what, so, okay. So let's say, but you know, other, but that's just me, you know, plenty of yeah, people yeah. would be happy to do that. Um, so what's the, what are the, t I guess if you wanted to set yourself up to just kind of be like your problem now, take it or leave it, you yeah. know, and once, once the check clears, it's yours and I'll hand over the keys to the kingdom. What, what would you do if you were someone like that? Would you approach the whole thing differently? Would you sell it earlier? Um, would you, you know, like, what would you, is there anything that you would do differently? Um, if I imagine it depends a lot on the size of the deal, I would think, I would think if the acquirer is going to be spending five, $10 million, then they would want you. And especially if there's a team for definitely, if there's a team, they're going to want to acquire the team and have everything kind of, uh, you know, at least at first have some kind of careful transition, uh, whether they're going to change the makeup of the team or and whatever. Um, but I feel like they would need some kind of a handoff, like how, can you give me some kind of perspective on those two the dramatically different scenarios? So what what would lead to one versus the other, do you think? Yeah, yeah. In, in a funny way, my experience has actually been the opposite. And the, mm. the larger the company, the less likely the founder will need to stick around. Oh. Because yeah, because the acquirer has will yeah, the acquirer will draw the conclusion that that the business has reached a point where it's not dependent on the owner's personal involvement anymore. Uh, so, you know, a five or $10 million SaaS company is going to be like, well, like it's, it's unlikely the owner is, is driving that. So therefore I agree wholeheartedly that they're going to want the team, but the, the owner founder may actually not necessarily have to go with that deal. Whereas this, the very small SaaS company, let's say it's $10,000 a year or $10,000 a month in, in, uh, in MRR, then you might be tied to it. Like it might be much tougher to, to walk away in particular, if you are personally involved in any customer uh, acquisition in particular, like for someone who's looking at a business like that, where you're making whatever it is, 10,000 a month, uh, they're going to 
look at that and say, wow, this guy's doing nothing with this product and it's making a nice clean 10 grand a month. If we actually put some energy into this, then we could really scale it. What they're going to want to know is that the acquisition of new subscribers is indeed scalable, i.e. not dependent on you personally. And so if you're the one who writes the article every month that that triggers the people to buy, or you know, you do the webinar that triggers the people to buy, yeah. that's going to be a problem relative to if you've got you know, the uh, Apple store is is how you drive 90% of your new acquisitions and it's not dependent on you doing anything. That's a much easier thing to walk away from. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you put it like that, because if you have a team, then you probably have kind of cut yourself out of the picture more than if you if it's if you're the chief cook and bottle washer and you're doing the, you know, everything. Yeah. Product updates, customer service, marketing, you know, and you're the face of it and your face is all over it, then wow. Yeah, that's there's a, yeah, there's a lot of private equity guys right now that are trying to roll up small SaaS companies. These, you know, $10,000 a month, uh, $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 a month companies and the private equity deal is um is an interesting one. Typically it's it's uh it's they'll pay, you know, 60 or they'll buy 60 or 70% of your company but they'll ask you to carry 30 or 40% into a new entity and continue to run your company. And the pitch is that, that, that they're going to roll together a bunch of these similar SaaS companies. And then in the future, sell all of them uh, at a much higher multiple because they'll have scale. And therefore, the second tranche of your equity, that 30 or 40% that you held on to, the pitch goes, it could be worth much more than the first 60% that we buy today. So it's a way to it's it's another way to uh, to sort of lock you in as the founder, sort of golden handcuffs, if you will, um, and it allows you to participate. Sometimes it works and it can be incredibly lucrative. Other times you end up having a boss and the worst of both worlds, in the sense that you no longer totally own your business, but you're you're deeply tied to it still because you own forty percent of it. So right. it's for you, it would be terrible, Jonathan. For people no, I, who play yeah. nicer in the sandbox, it might be okay. Yeah, no, I'm an outdoor cat. <laughs> Yeah. But but it's it's definitely a very common way that small SaaS companies sell is to sell to a private equity group sort of doing a bit of a roll up in this space. Well, okay. So that's I mean, that's useful information to somebody who is like me, has a personality like me, which would be to start to paint yourself out of the picture before you are having a conversation around this, because that's it's less likely that you'd be required to stick around. So out you know, getting your face off of the product, outsourcing to uh, a team, you know, yeah. building a team and outsourcing the stuff to them and, you know, making that, building that piece of the business up, building that like an internal engine. And then you'd be more, less likely to have to stick around if, you, if you're the type of person who definitely wouldn't want to do that. That's, a, that's, that's exactly right. And, and the other element is, is, I mean, you may have to still carry a little bit of equity, but ideally it's not 40%. Maybe you can get away with five or 10%. So you're notionally committed, but at the same time, it wouldn't be the end of the world if that goes to zero, mm. number one. Number two, what gives you leverage in a negotiation is obviously multiple bidders. So the way to ensure you get nothing that you want is to enter into a proprietary <laughs> deal where you start to go down the road of selling your company to one private equity group without actually shopping it. Whereas if you want the terms that you want, which are, I want to be paid up front for my business. I want cash. I don't want to earn earn out or a, 
you know, whatever, then you, you ideally want at least two bidders at the table so that you can play one off the other and say, you know, Bob's willing to give me hundred percent cash. So Steve, you need to, you know, it doesn't always work, but it certainly increases your likelihood to get the kind of terms you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how much, how much of this is like directly tied into the new book? Cause I'd like to talk about the new book a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, look, it's, um, I have had the privilege of interviewing something like 300 entrepreneurs uh, who have sold their company. Um, Arvid Carl comes to mind. Arvid's got a great new book out. He had a, a SaaS product called Feedback Panda, $60,000 a month in MRR. Uh, had a wonderful little exit. I don't say little in a pejorative way, but it was a relatively small company and had a beautiful exit and tells the story wonderfully. Uh, we've had people like Rand Fishkin who had these sort of spectacular exits as well. And I tried to, for the book, distill the negotiation hacks effectively. Like what, what can you do to punch above your weight in, in selling your company? That was the, the idea because for most entrepreneurs, A, it's life-changing. B, it's a David and Goliath battle and, and you're not the Goliath. You're, you're the David. And so you need some, some leverage and some, some, some hacks to sort of get a, get a reasonable uh, deal and so that's what I wanted to do with this book is try to give entrepreneurs the, the sort of uh, upper, upper hand in the negotiation. Hmm. Excellent. And that's coming out in January, 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. A couple of, yeah, yeah. Soon, soon, uh, soon as we record this. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, yeah. So probably by the time this comes out or by the time you listen it to listen to it, dear listener, there'll be a, uh, uh, a link in the show notes where you can go buy it directly from this website, or you can go to um, what's you, the, is built to sell still the website, or are you doing? Yeah, yeah, built to sell .com is like all roads lead there. So yeah, it's got stuff on all the books and links and offers and all kinds of good stuff. So yeah, built to sell .com is probably the best place. Killer, to great stuff. I I recommend built to sell to people all the time. That, oh, thank you. The way that you did that story was really persuasive, uh, and I absolutely love you know for folks who haven't read it, especially if you're a designer, you should really read that book. Because it's the kind of thing where, where uh, you know, I, I talk to a fair number of designers, they and it's it's a it's a tough thing for them to price to just have if they're just a generalist and they do whatever people need. Uh, maybe they've got a little bit of a specialty, but they they're doing a lot of different stuff. And the a lot of the a lot of the advice in the book and is just it's counterintuitive, but it makes sense as soon as you read it. You know, you're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes perfect sense. Uh, so it's a great it's a great story about sort of productizing a design service uh, in a way that you can actually generate profit instead of billing by the hour, which really doesn't doesn't create much of a profit margin for you if at all. Yeah, There's just no leverage there. So I, I'm sure the new book is going to be amazing as well. Oh, it's it's very kind of you to say. And again, we are in lockstep. This your mission to ditch hourly and and get people not to charge by the hour is is one of the fundamental things of building a business that uh, can thrive without you and can whatever you want to do with it, whether you want to sell it or not is, is kind of somewhat irrelevant. Uh, it's, it's, I, I believe so wholeheartedly in what you share with your uh, students around, around uh, the techniques to get out of the hourly space. That's such a dangerous, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a trap. Hamster wheel. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, thanks again for uh, for joining me today. Um, folks, definitely go to builttosell.com and check it out. Uh, I can't wait to get the new book in my hands. That's awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anytime. Hey, Jonathan again. 
The next time someone asks you for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go over to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.